0: Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation Curemasters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to What Doesn't Kill You... Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we're going to be talking about uh, shellfish aquaculture with my main man, Bob Rowe. Bob uh, was the president of Moonstone Oysters in Narragansett, Rhode Island. And for those of you who listen regularly, you know I'm a shameless and tireless promoter of all things New England, and particularly Rhode Island. Uh, He was there at Moonstone for 26 years. He has a PhD in biological oceanography and is an adjunct faculty member at the University of Rhode Island's Department of Fisheries and Aquaculture. He served as the East Coast Shellfish Growers Association president for five years before taking the executive director's seat, which he now fills. Bob established the East Coast Shellfish Research Institute and has been successful in attracting several substantial federal research grants to address critical industry research priorities. We'll find out what those are. He is an active member of the National Fisheries Institute and is a passionate industry advocate. I can tell you that for sure because Bob was my main man in a recently published... uh, story that I produced for Food Arts Magazine about shellfish aquaculture on both the East and West Coast. And I learned more from Bob than I did from all of the other interviews that I conducted uh, together. So Bob, welcome to the show. And thanks so much for giving me some time today on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day.
2: Oh, well, thank you, Katie. I'm excited to be on.
1: <laughs> That's great. So um, tell us a little bit about East Coast Shellfish Growers Association, and then uh, we'll follow up with uh, more pithy questions about the uh, future of shellfish aquaculture and what's going on right now.
2: Sure. Um, so I represent about 1,000 small farms from Maine to Florida, um, with the emphasis on the word small. There's really only about a dozen farms that have more than 10 employees, so we really are yeah. dominated by Mom and pops um, up and down the coast, it's about sixty percent clams and forty percent oysters, um, huge variability up and down the coast in terms of which states are, are doing it and which states are sort of watching um, but it's a it's a great industry to be an advocate for, and um, there's really no downside I mean it's, yeah it's uh, hard to say anything bad about it, yeah. It's a you know, sustainable seafood, uh, tastes great, nutritious and delicious, and uh, it's great green jobs. It's a growing industry, and uh, it's just uh, I'm very passionate about being able to support it because there's really no downside.
1: Absolutely. Um, so just in the last, I would say, 10 or 15 years, I, you can correct me, of course, uh, it seems to me like the shellfish aquaculture um, uh, industry has really blown up. What do you think is the cause of that?
2: Yeah, you know, we're we're enjoying a really um, nice growth, it's pretty steady growth at about ten percent um, year over year. Even in the you know the challenging years of the recession, we were seeing this kind of growth. And it's I got to say, it's not even up and down the coast, but in certain places like in Rhode Island, and Massachusetts, and Maine, uh, and Virginia, we've been seeing you know astounding twenty percent year growth. So it's really. Um, it's it's neat to see and I you know, if I had to guess why that is, I'd say that we're, you know, gradually recovering from a, a very old perception that shellfish are not safe to eat. And this, you know, goes back to the nineteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, really before we had figured out what causes illness. And we did some pretty unsafe things with our food back then and you know, we thought we got sick from bad air. Well it was really the bad oysters and when they finally figured out what uh... was causing these massive epidemics of cholera in the cities of new york and things like that we quickly figured out well we can't be keeping our oysters or harvesting oysters from the the same place where we 're dumping all our sewage, and we've figured all that out, and now we are able to serve a very safe product and I think uh, the consumer 's catching on and we 're also riding the coattails of a couple of very powerful movements right now, the sustainable seafood movement, mm-hmm. the locavore movement, and uh, people are cherishing really the difference between um, different varieties of oysters and sort of comparing them like wines. I, I think uh we're we're really uh enjoying this wonderful renaissance right now. Uh
1: no doubt about it. Um so Bob, uh, give us a couple of things spring to mind. First of all, when you talk about food safety, I know a lot of people think that uh months without an R are not safe to eat oysters in. Um is that true or false? And if it's false, tell us why.
2: So you know, we've we've pretty much conquered all of the uh the health concerns or relating to sewage the most challenging thing for us now are these naturally occurring things and and by which i mean red tides um and and a bacteria that's a naturally occurring bacteria called vibrios mm-hmm. and and that we've done we, we have not had illnesses due to to red tides for decades i mean we've really figured out how to monitor for that and we've uh, you know sometimes people will get sick from uh, recreationally harvested, but if it's in the commercial marketplace, it's. Uh, I don't think we've had an illness in several years. Um, the vibrio bacteria is one of our last remaining challenges, and it's a naturally occurring bacteria that is most common in summer. Um, and we are learning how to handle our product better, how to keep it iced right out of the water, how to keep it cold, and then you know, the challenging part is teaching the consumer that you know if you're buying it in the fish store or in uh... you know at your at your grocery store you need to keep it on ice on the way home because these bacteria will grow anytime the temperature is above fifty degrees taking what would be a perfectly safe shellfish and if those bacteria double a few times suddenly they might cause an illness Mm -hmm. and the other thing we're trying to teach people about is if you're immune compromised if you've got liver disease or um, certain uh, medications that you might be on that are affecting you. If you've got diabetes, you probably shouldn't be eating any raw foods at all, much less raw shellfish, um, and, and especially not in summer when your risk might be a little bit higher. Just cook it up, and, and there's many, many recipes that we would encourage you to try if you're challenged in the immune system. But by and large, most people are are fine eating raw shellfish. I've done it every week for about three decades.
1: <laughs> yeah without incident, you know <laughs> 26 years of moonstone oysters yeah i'm guessing three decades at least right so let me ask you what are the biggest innovations in the industry because it's really changed a lot i mean during the course of writing that article uh, that you participated in i learned a lot about the history of oystering and um there was some really cool new technology and new gear and i, I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about that
2: Sure. So, I mean, it was only around 1950 that we learned to spawn shellfish, and that was a huge deal because it allowed us to select for certain traits uh-huh. and select the parents that grew fast or or survived to diseases better. That was a huge breakthrough for us, um, being able to rear them in the hatchery and, and make different parent stock, and that allowed us to select for um, disease resistance because there are several diseases that... 'll knock out oysters altogether uh, but but through selective breeding um, we 've been able to to select for resistance to these and, and greatly improved our survival and then you know more recently uh, since I got into this uh, business we 've had the invention of plastics, which was wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean we used to work with chicken wire, which stands up for about a year in the marine environment before it rots and it 's gone. but we have to protect our our baby oysters from the crabs that just love, well, everything loves oysters, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the crabs love them, starfish love them. And um, once we figured out how to make these plastic netting, um, it's quite durable and stands up for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. Wow. Um, that was just a huge breakthrough for us in terms of being able to grow uh, oysters and, and clams. Um, and and then most recently, one, one more thing that we've developed is um, triploidy and so while most organisms have two sets of genes we've, we can manipulate them and, and give them a third set like we do for seedless watermelons or for limes that, that uh, have no seeds and so they don't produce eggs and, and, and so they grow faster which, which makes it uh, easier for us to make a dollar on them because they tend to, to die quickly if we can't get them to market quickly mm-hmm.
1: How long is the average? I mean, you harvest them at, what, two years, right?
2: Yeah, when I first started in this business, it would take me three years on average to get my oysters to market size. Um, But through certain innovations, um, one that we developed called an upweller, we were able to shave a year off the production Mm -hmm. cycle. And we're getting them to market on average in about 18 months now, two summers and uh-huh. they're out the door. Um, some, How big are will they? take a third year, but it's great.
1: Yeah. How big are they at, at two years? Because I know in, 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 talking to all these various different experts, yourself included, you all remarked on the fact that oysters have gone, uh, as a trend, have gone uh, much smaller in terms of what the consumer is looking for. And I thought that was an interesting um, development that it was like, you know, incredibly convenient for you guys who want to get them to market faster. But also as a consumer myself, I much prefer the smaller oysters.
2: Yeah, it's uh, kind of fascinating. I mean, uh, I, I reminisce back when I got started and made my first oyster sales up in Boston. They would have laughed me out of the place if I walked in there with an oyster less than four inches. And and now um, I've got restaurants that want, you know, nothing over three and a quarter inches, you know, two and a half inches to three wow. inches. Um, these little things are slightly larger than a muscle, and I think I'm ripping the customer off, but, you know, I... Uh, uh, I've spent time at Grand Central Station, Oyster Bar in in New York City. There, and and uh, you'll hear someone walk in the door and say, "What's the smallest oyster you have?" Uh, words I never dreamed I would yeah. have heard before. But you know, this is the trend, and and we are happy to provide that. It means <laughs> that we can get them up. Uh, you know, in in as little as a year, oftentimes. Yeah. Um, sometimes it, you know you want to. Uh, at one year, they tend not to have much in them, so we'll we'll, uh, we've learned that we can tumble them and beat them up, and they'll round up into this nice sort of half-walnut shape. And um, that seems to be what the customer really wants is something just slightly larger than a walnut full of meat. And uh, we can do that.
1: Amazing, because I know I talked to Rodney Clark, and he was telling me that back in the day. I'm sure you know him up in Toronto, Rodney Clark. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So he was saying that when he got into the business, because he's uh, quite a bit older, I think, than we are. He, you know, uh, there was the super fancy or something like that that was six to eight inches. Was the
2: North- well, and I still have a market for those. I mean, we'll really? have some escapees that fall off the raft, and and I'll go down and dive on them and scoop them up later. Uh-huh. And it will be a hundred pound, hundred count. So literally, each oyster is a pound, wow. bigger than my hand, and I'll get great money for them. And there's still a segment of you know, the, it tends to be older gentlemen, I might say, uh, <laughs> who remember what they want. They want their their money's worth. Yeah, and, that would have
1: been my grandfather. <laughs> And my father, they were both from New Orleans, and they both liked their oysters really big. Um, can you tell me what uh, part of the aquaculture um, segment is is going faster? Is it oysters? Because that's what I see. Um, yeah. But I know you were talking that clams are claiming sixty percent of the market, uh, oysters forty. So I was kind of surprised by that. Can you talk a little bit about the you know sort of economics of that and and why you think that? Um, You know, clams are still dominant when I don't, I just don't see that.
2: Well, so it was about 15, 20 years ago that we really figured out how to grow clams, and a number of states really went into it in large fashion, including um, Virginia and Florida. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, too large a fashion, and the price collapsed uh, pretty much coastwide from about $0.25 to about 15 to maybe $0.17 a clam. And um, so a number of the growers got out of it, and since then the production has remained sort of flat. And we've been seeing up on Cape Cod, where a lot of the growers uh, in Wellfleet, Mass. There used to be about 300 clam farmers. That number has declined over the last just five years, almost in half Ooh. in terms of the number of clams being grown out there, because they found that they can grow oysters that are worth you know sixty cents, right. and. Um, So there, you know, it's not quite as much work to grow clam. I call it benign neglect. You sort of plant them and scrub the screens every couple of months. Oysters are a full-time job tending them, but.
1: Really, the why value is that? that you, what do you receive do you...
2: is what's driving it, and we're seeing uh, almost almost all the growth on the East Coast is in oyster production,
1: uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, and the clams are hard shell clams like cherry stones and right. and uh, quahogs and exactly what else do they do? Well, no, no it, gooey you know, ducks. They go no they names,
2: but uh, topnecks, littlenecks, little necks, mm-hmm. cherry stones. Um, it's all the same species. When we grow them on the farm since the highest value is at the smallest size, we pretty much tend to get them all as little necks. Uh-huh. Um, anything that you see that's larger than a top neck in the market is probably a wild clam.
1: Uh-huh. Huh? And how many? I mean, uh, when I was talking to Perry Rosso of Matunic Oyster Bar, he was saying that because um, I asked him if he would ever start clam farming too, and he said no because he's getting the same price for them, and also the wild clams are still so abundant. I was kind of surprised to hear that there are still so many people who are involved in actually farming clams if the wild uh, clam supply is is still quite uh, robust.
2: So, and that that varies highly from state to state. I, I mean, see. we. We do land about $5 million in clams in the tiny little state of Rhode Island, but that's substantially down from 20 or 30 years ago when it was $15 So the wild stocks are, uh, I'd say they're challenged in most areas. I mean, we are very effective predators, us humans. And (laughs) they they don't escape very well, and they can't run away. So um, if you've got a lot of clams somewhere, we're going to find a way to get them out. And... um, I think pretty much coastwide, wide the, the biomass of the wild clam is, is not what it has been historically.
1: Interesting. Listen, we have to take a short break, right, Joe? We have to give a little sponsor drop now, and uh, we'll be right back. Please stay tuned with Bob Rowe of the East Coast Shellfishers, Shellfish Growers Association for a primer on aquaculture, shellfish aquaculture, and how it's going to basically save the world. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back.
0: Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days, and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surryfarms.com.
1: And we're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. On the line with me is Bob Rowe, the East Coast shellfisher. A shellfish Growers Association, sorry about that, East Coast Shellfish Growers Association, Bob Rowe, um, and we are talking about uh, aquaculture uh, primarily on the East Coast, but it's a big business on the West Coast too, and and Bob, you were talking a minute ago about how it generates $5 million worth of revenue in just the state of Rhode Island, but overall, what kind of money are we talking about in terms of shellfish aquaculture? Is it um, Will it, do you think, become a replacement for uh, the ailing fisheries of the the Northeast, which um, have, you know, taken body blow after body blow uh, over the last few years between uh, the change in, in uh, marine fisheries uh, programs like cat shares and then the recent cod, loss of cod. Um, you know, it, it's it's not looking good for the fishing population in, in the Northeast. And I wondered if, uh, if shellfish is going to take that place. What do you think about that?
2: So I, I never like to say that uh, we would replace wild harvest fishing. And in fact, you know most of the stocks in the New England uh, fisheries are well on the road to recovery. Cod has been a huge challenge and and huge. the quota cuts have been a huge challenge, but we had um, very significant issues with overcapacity that needed to be wound down and and so it's been a real challenge we've seen a collapse of the southern New England lobster fishery um, mostly because of we've seen dramatic increases in the temperature of the waters Mm -hmm. um... but the lobsters have moved north and so maine has got so many lobsters that they collapsed their price last year so you know there's changes in the environment but we and and we are finding a lot of fishermen who can't find jobs or make a living on the water are switching over to aquaculture i've got a lot of people in my association who are former fishermen or who fish on the side, but are now making a living um, growing oysters. You talk to the gear suppliers, the guys who used to sell a lot of lobster pots. They're mm-hmm. still selling a lot of lobster pots, especially after a big hurricane, but now they're they're making twice as much money on oyster cages. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is this um, shift, and, you know, we, in Rhode Island, where there's, Sixty thousand acres of water. We're only farming on 150 acres, um, and we're producing three million dollars worth of, of oysters. Wow. So, at the rate of growth that we're experiencing, uh, I expect we'll eclipse the wild harvest of clams in about three more years, mm-hmm. and then people will stand up and take notice. But it, we'll never replace it. There will always be that wild harvest of well, clams. Well, I, I
1: certainly hope so.
2: <laughs> and we we don't we don't. Um, fight of you know over grounds if there's a good cohogging spot they don't let us lease it for oyster growth so we're able to take non-productive areas and make them productive
1: Uh uh-huh very that part is very interesting to me and also the part about the water getting too warm for the lobsters and um so i i hadn't really been thinking of you in terms of lobster but of course there are shellfish as well um and so are crabs do you also cover that in the east coast shellfishers Shellfish Growers Association, or is it just the, the bivalves? Just the
2: delectable bivalve morsels, the ones with two shells.
1: <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Um, are there differences in flavor between the farmed and the uh, and the wild?
2: So if you have, um, you know, if they're growing side by side, a wild oyster and a, and a cultured oyster, you won't be able to taste the difference in the meats. There might be... You know, a different look in the shell because we handle them differently. They might come from a different genetic stock, but uh, the the fact of the matter is that they are what they eat, and they're eating the local plankton. And while my farm was you know a mile or two away from Perry Rassos and we could taste the difference in each other's oysters, yeah. it was pretty subtle. Um, and and an oyster, you know, a wild oyster grown in the same water as a cultured oyster, that the taste will be. You won't be able to differentiate between the tastes. Now, a different species, absolutely., um, well, I was growing the European flat oyster for a while, and that tasted markedly different than yeah. the American oyster. Yeah, because
1: on the East Coast, it's only Krasostria virginicus, I understand, except for those few guys who wanted to do the flat oyster
2: right. and And um, it was the challenge getting permits, but a, a few of us have tried they're They're not the easiest to grow. I mean, the, the challenge is always to, to do it and make money at it. Um, there's a number of species that we can grow that we can't either ship or they're, they're just not, they don't have enough value to justify the labor that goes into it, like a, a soft-shell clam up here, we call them steamers. Yeah. Um, it's just a low-value product. We can grow them. Um, we just can't make money at it. Right. I used to grow uh, the bay scallop and... They were great product, but they had a shelf life of about three days, which was not very helpful.
1: Right. So that means you can only go into local restaurants with it because it's got to go it, right from the boat to the restaurant, right?
2: So, you know, and then there's things like the, the razor clam. We can grow them, but they get up and they swim away. Um, <laughs> so that's a challenge.
1: Uh-huh. You can't put netting over them to make them stay in place? Um, you know,
2: they're, we're working on it. The uh-huh. challenges have not yet been surmounted. How's that?
1: How's that? Okay, I get that. Um, You, you make me ask, I, I was going to ask what other species, but you've kind of answered that. So scallops, not so great because they don't last very long. Razor clams, they swim away. What other uh, species are there? There's like gooey duck clams, for instance, I know, are grown out on the West Coast. Manila clams are grown out on the West Coast. Are we just not, our water isn't cold enough or we don't have the right uh, plankton conditions What's why don't we grow that here?
2: Well, you know, I think the gooey duck clam, which if, if your listeners haven't seen one of these monstrosities, they grow to like five pounds. Um, these clams are, are like a steamer on steroids. Yeah. They're really quite prodigious. Um, but uh, I like that we, word. We, they are
1: disgusting.
2: We, we, uh, it's an exotic species here, so we would not be able to get permits to grow oh, uh, a non-native clam like the uh-huh. manila. And the the gooey duck, the Manila was actually introduced unintentionally with some oyster seed um, that they were bringing over from Japan when they were getting started using the the Japanese oyster on the West Coast. Right. We we also do well um, on the East Coast with mussels, and while it's taken the U. S. a little bit um, longer to get into this, up in in Canada, Atlantic Canada, and on the West Coast as well, it's a multi-million dollar industry, and we're trying to get this started. On the East Coast here in New England, because we know that u s imports a tremendous amount of uh, the blue mussel
1: yeah that 's crazy
2: um, and um, they 're relatively easy to grow, but um, we 're challenged getting permits and, and um, lots of people don 't want to see somebody farming in their viewscape, so um,
1: well, aren't, I mean, mussels, you can grow on long lines.
2: Exactly. So
1: you're doing, I mean, some people are doing that like out in Narragansett Bay. But when you and I spoke uh, a few months ago about this, you were telling me that there are a couple of pilot projects for growing, you know, enormous amounts of mussels, but in federal waters. And that somehow, uh, who controls that and who permits that? Um, those federal waters is still kind of ambiguous. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that whole permitting process? Because I think that's kind of an interesting issue. I mean, who's, you know, the state controls coastal waters off, uh, what, two or three miles off the coast of any given state?
2: Right. It's out to three miles of state waters, and then it becomes federal waters. Uh Even in Rhode Island, we've got a little strip of federal waters between us and Block Island. Um, But and every state has, you know, sovereign rights to control what goes on in in their tidal waters, and and each state handles it quite differently. Um, but once you get out into federal waters, there's no established leasing authority, so um, we're very reluctant to go out there because we don't have a legal authority to say we own this crop, or we're, mm-hmm. you know, the best we can do is get permission from the Army Corps to put a structure out there. Which would be sort of like an oil drilling platform or something. But in this case, it's a mussel farm. You have right. to get a, a permit um, anytime you're, you're going into navigable waters to make sure you're not in, in somebody's way. Mm-hmm. But um, w- it, several efforts at legislation have failed because, frankly, because the idea of aquaculture got quite contentious a few years back when, when people were concerned about potential impacts from fish farms.
1: Right, Um, uh, and there are no there are no impacts from shellfish farming because they're filtering the water. They're not adding, uh, you know, you're not feeding them. You're not. uh, They're not producing huge amounts of waste, etc., etc. Isn't that so? Isn't that too much of a
2: good thing can become a bad thing? And and there mm -hmm. are a few isolated cases around the the planet where you put in too many uh, shellfish in a in a limited space, especially if there's not adequate currents and they they start competing for food and the growth rate slows down and you start to see impacts, um, but you know by and large you really have to work hard to exceed what we call the carrying capacity of a marine system. We had uh, a scientist come and evaluate that because it was a concern. You know we're seeing sure. this rapid growth in production. How much can we do before we start to hit these limits? Uh-huh. Well, it, turned, it turns out that it's about. You know, you can cover about 50% of most bodies of water with oyster farms and uh, before you start to worry about that. So that was quite a relief. We'll never get there because uh, people are too attached to uh, sailboats and water skis and things <laughs> like that. But, uh, you know, if we can grow $3 million worth of oysters on it, 150 acres, we really don't need too much area to uh, have quite an impact and provide a lot of jobs and a lot of wonderful products.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that um, we have to sort of wrap it up here, but I think one of the things that struck me when we were talking earlier um, was the fact that this kind of aquaculture, because it has such a low environmental impact, really is kind of the wave of the future in terms of, meeting the protein needs of our ever-growing population. And if uh, if predictions are to be believed and we'll be at 9 billion in, I don't know, 2050, then uh, the growth of shellfish aquaculture is going to be kind of crucial to our survival. Would you concur with that?
2: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's great because it's one of the most sustainable forms of food production on the planet. No impacts, no drugs, no chemicals, no right. fertilizers. Um, and it tastes great, too. So. Yeah. <laughs>
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to argue with an oyster or a clam. If you love the bivalve, then you love the bivalve. And and as you said, they can be cooked into any number of recipes as well. So it's not just that you have to eat them on the half shell. You can eat them in any number of ways that make a lot of sense. So um, Bob, sadly, even though I had a billion other questions, particularly about the research that you're carrying on, maybe you'll come back and talk to us about that a little bit. I just want to mention that you're doing nutrient credit trading as a means to limit coastal eutrophication. I thought that was really interesting because it parallels cap and trade to a certain extent, right? Absolutely. I mean, there were uh, throughout the course of this conversation. I've been struck by the parallels between either sort of big industry, you know, like uh, the kind of manufacturing industry that produces carbon problems, um, but also the the meat industry. Um, where you have sort of the whole issue of like how many things can be crammed into one small space and still survive and the, you know, the issues with, uh, with waste disposal, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot of, um, and also fish farming, which we really barely talked about and I would love to talk more about with you. Um, but we're going to have to wrap it up and, um, why don't you tell people where they can learn more about the East Coast Shellfish Growers Association and some of the, um, some of the research that you're doing? Cause I think it's a really interesting field.
2: Well, you know, we've got a great website, ecsga.org, East Coast Shellfish Growers Association. And, uh, you know, we're trying to show people how there are tangible environmental benefits associated with shellfish culture we can be a part of the solution for habitat and for nutrients and for water quality. Um, And I, I just, you know, it's a... It's a great product and a, and a great story to tell, and I really appreciate you having me on, and I'll be back in a heartbeat. You just have to ask.
1: Oh, that'd be great, Bob. I'd love to have you back, because I really think this is a very interesting part of our you know, food solutions for the future, and, and you're a wonderful exponent for your industry. So thank you again so much for joining me today on Father's Day. Uh, thank you to my sponsor, Sam Edwards, a great father himself and one of the ultimate cure masters, and thanks to my engineer. And remember, folks, pledge your support to Heritage Radio Network so you can continue to hear from people like Bob Rowe. All you have to do is go to the website and uh, press the button and we'll take your money happily and you can become a member of our family. So until next week, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org You can find all of our archived programs on our website,